The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Lynette's Shrimp House, located in Highland Park. It's Metro Detroit's premier destination, serving juicy fried shrimp, fish, and wings, alongside soul food sides and new additions to the menu, like turkey tacos and desserts. Located at 13548 Woodward in Highland Park, just north of the Davison, Lynette's is open for takeaway, noon to 8, Tuesday and Thursday, noon to 10 p.m. Friday and Saturday, and noon to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Call now, get some Lynette's. Hey, greetings, everyone. I'm Craig Folly. Welcome to Deadline TV here at DeadlineDetroit.com. Coming up on Saturday, it is the 20th anniversary, of course, of the World Trade Center bombings, 9-11. 20 years already has passed, and it's, it's remarkable to me to think about it since that day is still so ingrained in our memories for those of us that were here uh, to witness it. I was in Detroit that day. And of course, I was on the air and spent the next 16 hours on the air that day. But my friend Alan Lengel, who is here with us right now, of course, the founder and publisher of Deadline Detroit, uh, was in Washington, D.C. that day. And that was a completely different experience than we had here in Detroit, obviously. But we want to talk a little bit about that day, what we remember about it, and also really about how it has affected so many different aspects of, of our lives, from the way we plan, the way we travel, to the way our government works. So many things have changed in the last 20 years as a result of 9-11, and uh, you know, given the tributes that are going to be taking place, of course, all over the place this weekend, we thought it important to get to it today. Alan, welcome. It's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, like I said, that day, we'll never forget uh, what happened that day. But for those of us that, um, you know, were dealing with it on the ground, the way that people in Washington were, given that there were targets in Washington, D.C., the Pentagon was hit. There was talk about uh, the Capitol being one of the targets that, of course, uh, the plane in Shanksville, Pennsylvania was likely that plane. We don't know exactly what was going to happen that day. Uh, but, you know, it all just sort of happened so quickly i mean the initial the initial news that a plane struck the world trade center everybody's sort of like well that's unusual but then when it was the second it's like this this sort of cloud of gloom fell down over everything right right i i remember that day i I was living on connecticut avenue in uh, upper northwest dc i was working at the washington post and we had been working on the chandra levy case there was a group of us and we've been working on it for months and months and months and it seemed to be the hottest story and i'm walking down connecticut avenue and i run into a friend it was about 9 30 and she says did you hear uh you know some planes crashed into the world trade center And i'm like holy cow what's going on here and so, uh, you know, it was a little weirded out. And I, I went to the Van Ness uh, subway on the red line there. And I hopped on the subway. It was about a, you know, maybe 10, 10 minute ride downtown. And by the time I got out at the Farragut North, which was at Connecticut and L Street downtown, just about four blocks from the Washington Post, I ran into my editor, who was, she was a little bit always kind of a panicky person anyways. And she's like, oh, my God, they're bombing everything. They've, you know, they've hit the State Department, which they had not hit. But she was just picking up all the rumors. And then I got up on the main street there on, on L Street, and it was just packed. And I heard people yelling, don't go into the office, just go home. And so I knew I needed to go in the office because this is go time for, you know, as a reporter, you're like, the world's falling apart. Uh, So I walked into the post newsroom and it was kind of quiet. 
people were standing around. There were TVs all around the newsroom and people were standing around watching reports of what was going on. And they were seeing, you know, video of, of the World Trade Center. And so everybody got their assignments. So they sent me over to the uh, police department, police headquarters, which was about maybe about a mile and a half, give or take. And so I didn't take I walked over there because I didn't want to take the subway and people were trying to get home by the subway. I tried calling on my cell phone. You couldn't get cell phone reception because every single person was on the phone talking to somebody. And so we got to uh, the headquarters there and there's some other reporters sort of hanging out. And we're just waiting to hear, you know, the police chief, uh, Charles Ramsey, would pull up and we'd say, well, what are you hearing? And he'd say, well, I hear there's still a plane uh, out there in Pennsylvania. And so I remember standing out there in front of the police headquarters and looking up in the sky and thinking, well, if that plane is coming at me, I should be able to, you know, run away. Uh, So it's just very weird. And from then, you know, you thought, okay, the world has changed. And I, and I do remember like a week later talking to my mother who was, here was a, you know, a survivor of Auschwitz. And she says, you know, it just feels like the end of the world. And I said, but you went through the Holocaust. They said, it must've felt that way then. And she said, well, yeah. And I said, well, this is gonna, well, you know, we'll, we'll get by this, but you know, the world changed. Everything changed. Our sense of security changed. Uh, everything. We worried about everything blowing up. And and afterwards, and I was covering, you know, the Chandra Levy thing was like, who cares? Yeah, exactly. That, went, pushed aside. that went by the wayside. Yeah. And suddenly we were all geared up. And then, uh, so we were, we were reporting on stuff. And here it was like four days later, everybody, all the reporters in the newsroom, those who had come, you know, had worked in New Jersey, went to New Jersey. Those who had worked at, you know, in, at the Miami Herald or whatever, they went down to Miami to co- you know, cover what was going on in different states. I came to Detroit. I had the Detroit connection. And they had arrested uh, four people in Dearborn, and they were calling it a sleeper cell. And then at some point, uh, Ashcroft, the Attorney General Ashcroft, came out and said, these people had prior knowledge of 9-11, yeah. which I talked to sources here in Detroit and they were like, no, that's not true. And so I told the post, I said, don't run that story because it's not true. And the New York times did run it quoting Ashcroft. And then the next day had a peel back where they had to correct it and say, oops. I, I, you know, the initial shock though, of of that day and the immediate aftermath of it, I mean, because it was such a horrific event and, and I don't think, any of us, like I said, will ever forget those images that we saw. And and I mean, it took days for us to sort of decompress and, and realize what the scope of this was, because in those early moments, especially if you're in a place like Washington, um, you know, you're thinking, is there another attack that's going to be on the way? Is this is this something else that's going to happen? Are there going to be bombs put out somewhere? Um, but you still had to go do your job. You still had to go to work. Uh, and that eerie, quiet, that must have been out there when everybody was indeed at home, with the exception of so uh, you know security officials and and some of those reporters that were out there. Right. Well, you know, National Airport had been shut, so I flew back here about four days after September 11th. But so I had a choice: either you know fly out of Dulles or fly out of BWI. I was like BWI better than Dulles, so I flew. You had to be there at least three hours be- beforehand, uh, and I remember standing in line. 
at the airport, standing in line for the plane. And there were some military guys who were going to be on the flight. And I remember everybody was looking each other over, trying to assess like, and I was like, all right, we got some military guys on the plane. Anything happens. But people were worried. And and the whole thing just just changed every everything. You know, there is the the longer term change that we saw. And then there was the short term change. You remember, of course, the arrests of the people in Dearborn as a quote unquote sleeper cell. And I think that overreaction probably took place in a number of places around the country. You know, the mosques were under surveillance in every community uh, that has a decent sized Muslim population. Um, and, And people were looking at each other funny, you know. Do I know that person? Do I trust right. that person? And I mean, the level of paranoia that we had to work through was really intense. Well, I'll tell you, it was interesting because I was also covering uh, the FBI and, and the federal agencies at the time. And what we were seeing, I mean, we had Robert Mueller, who had just been appointed the FBI director. He came in like September the 5th. And mm-hmm. here it is, September 11th. He's suddenly dealing with something totally different. And so... The high priority obviously became like uh, counterterrorism, counterintelligence. And so the FBI started shifting people from, you know, the violent crime squad, from corruption squads. And they didn't know really how to use all those resources all at once, how to use them effectively. And, you know, they were tracking down every, weren't able to do discern between what was a good tip and a bad tip. They were just tracking down everything in the beginning. I mean, as they went on, they learned more. And the FBI was also, look, as it, overall, as an agency here, you have all these new people in counterintelligence and in, in counterterrorism who know nothing about the Middle East, who know nothing about Islam, about radical Islam. And so there was a high learning curve for the FBI. And, and at the same time, what we saw is that resources were being wasted because there were just too many people in counterterrorism and counterintelligence and they didn't know how to use them all. And at the same time, <clears throat> some of those people were mad because they saw the violent crime squads were just being decimated. They saw public corruption was a lower you know, priority for the Bureau and people were angry. They saw the Bureau as more the bureau has always sort of had these, you know, a million tentacles out there and and they were just being narrowed down. And so there was a lot of tension. And you saw if you talk to people over time, I mean, Robert Mueller was a very stoic guy within. He, he was not a kidder. As, as I had one one agent once told me, he says, when I went in to talk to Robert Mueller to brief him, I went in nervous and I left nervous. Yeah. He said when Comey came in. I went in nervous and I left relaxed. So Bob Mueller was a very straight-laced, very, very stoic, kind of uptight guy. And so he had to change the whole character of the FBI. And a lot of agents, they didn't like him. They didn't like the way he was doing things. And so there was a mix. There were a lot of agents who were glad to see him leave at, at, at the end. But, you know, he, he did what he had to do. And, you know, whether it was always the right thing. Obviously it couldn't have been always the right thing. But but when you look at the reaction to it though, right? You've got the FBI that again is, is immediately put into motion to make sure that there's no other plots that are getting ready to unfold in the immediate aftermath of this, right? Is right. this something broader? Are there sleeper cells here? Then it morphs into something completely different. We get the Department of Homeland Security, the creation of this entire new branch of, of, of uh, you know, of law enforcement right. that all of a sudden has really wide and sweeping powers, 
uh, and, and are able to overrule things like the FAA in, in, in certain situations and can overrule, you know, the FBI in certain situations and other government agencies in the name of national security. I don't want to suggest that we went overboard with this, but I mean, when you look back at that response, it's been 20 years for us to look at this. And you could argue that we have been somewhat successful and DHS has done its job because we haven't had an attack like that since then on our soil. It does seem, though, that we got very, very used to a different level of of freedom of association and freedom of movement than we had before. I, you know, I think after September 11th, people were so scared. So the idea of, of wiretaps, of, you know, intrusive. Patriot Act. And, I mean, yeah. Yeah, all, all that kind of stuff was people, were, you know, a lot of people were like, do whatever you need to do, not realizing you know, and some people ended up on the no-fly list who shouldn't have been there. We had people detained in Guantanamo without any charges as, you know, enemy combatants. Uh, and, you know, it, it, we had to ask ourselves, is this America? Is this the America we want? Uh, so there was a lot of overreaching at times and trying to figure out where is the right balance there. And so we, you know, as, as Americans, we we went through a really challenging time there. You know, I I think Homeland Security, I'm still skeptical of Homeland Security that we needed to create that old thing. It was just a whole other, you know, arm of of government, uh, more bureaucracy. Uh, and, and, and one thing, I mean, if you talk to people in the different agencies, there's such a competitiveness, even between, I, I remember being, uh, there was a bombing over in uh, Upper Northwest in, in D.C. where a guy set up a stepson, put a pipe bomb in his dad's, you know, Washington Redskin uh, SUV, trying to kill his dad. Instead, his stepbrother went in there and blew off part of his body. He survived. But when the first explosion happened, it was in a parking structure. The ATF came out there and the FBI came out there. And ATF is responsible for explosives. And FBI came out there and, you know, muscled their way and said, this is our investigation. We think this might be a terrorism thing. And it wasn't a terrorism thing. But I, I saw that all the time, the ATF and FBI just constantly battling. And so here it is. You create a new agency with more of all of that. And, and it's just, you know, I, I'm not sure it was was a good thing. But I, I mean, and, and if you look at it, this, I mean, though, we weren't limited to just the United States uh, when it comes to this level of enforcement. Obviously, we used 9-11 uh, as the impetus for going into Afghanistan to, quote unquote, start the war on terror. 20 years right. later, we're just now leaving Afghanistan. Uh, and, and for 20 years, the whole thing was we need to protect America from terrorism. You know, you read some stories that are coming out in like the Atlantic this week and some of the other places about what really has occurred in Afghanistan over these last 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, you wonder. I mean, you know, we didn't just overreach here, I think. I mean, and I think we did. The reaction to it was natural, but I also think it was sustained for far too long. Right. Um, and and I, look, I think. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think another component that we sometimes forget about is that suddenly in the midst of all this fear early on, suddenly we had anthrax. We had anthrax being delivered to the post office in D.C. There were people dying from being exposed to anthrax. And the one thing I, I have to say, I, the Postal Service and whoever else was involved in the security of that created these sensors in post postal services. So at, at some point it was ridiculous when we'd see like suspicious packages show up 
and they would be detaining people and stuff like that. When it, you know, particularly when it came through the U.S. mail, the sensors were so good that they detected any type of stuff. But I, early on, when some postal uh, workers died, uh, the post sent me over to the post, post office. I think it was in Northeast D.C. And I went to interview postal workers who were, were coming out of work. And probably within a week, uh, I was having flu-like symptoms. And, you know, I suddenly I, I was home and I got some calls from the from the newspaper saying, you know, you should get to the hospital and check. And I went to Georgetown Hospital and they did a chest x-ray and they found everything was fine that I probably just did have have a, a slight flu. Uh, but we dealt with the anthrax and I ended up covering that for for years and, and the mystery of of the whole thing. And uh, I don't know. It was crazy. They had a guy, Stephen Hatfield. He was a scientist up at the in, in Frederick, Maryland, uh, and he had been dealing with with anthrax. And all the coincidences pointed to him. He was a doctor. He was he was also a medical doctor. He had written out a prescription for Cipro, which was uh, the antibiotic of choice for for fighting anthrax. He had written it out to himself right around that time. They had taken dogs to his apartment building and were sniffing out every floor, and the dogs ran right to his apartment. But he had been dealing with some anthrax anyways as, as part of his profession. And then there was some other thing going on there. And so they had him under surveillance 24-7, and uh, he ended up you know, suing the Justice Department, and I ended up doing like three depositions. There were, there were six of us at different or, news organizations where they were trying to find out who our sources were. And so it, it was a battle over four years, and finally uh, the government uh, decided to settle. And you know, so. uh, yeah, Well, you know, what's interesting to me is I was listening to a, a news report just this morning uh, talking about uh, the, the confessed mastermind of the 9-11 attacks as in having another pretrial motion hearing today. Uh, this has been going on for over a decade. He's been yeah. in Guantanamo this entire time. And uh, like I said, he has confessed. So a, a lot of these pretrial motions, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. But the fact that we are still litigating this stuff 20 years later, I mean, it, it, does that in your mind help us to, or, or, you know, keep us from gaining the sort of closure that we'd like? Uh, on this chapter in the United States, because I'm not sure we'll ever forget it. And we never forgot Pearl Harbor. We're not going to forget this, but we have moved on. We still have not moved on from this completely. I, I think there's still questions. And I think you'll probably see it with the anniversary. There's still questions about the Saudi uh, involvement in this. Suddenly, you know, some of the Saudi family disappeared from the U S uh, right after September 11th. I think there, there's certainly, there's more questions like the Kennedy assassination. You know, I think there's plenty of people who tell you there's still plenty of questions that, that have not been answered. And I think same but, thing but here. We don't. That wasn't used to justify wholesale changes to surveillance uh, right. and, and personal privacy. Right. But we look, it's we're still pretty loose. I mean, if you go to Israel, uh, you know, you walk into a mall, they check you. You go through a metal detector, you go to the train station you go through a metal detector, they check your bags. We're still, I, I thought we would be further along where if we went to a movie theater, we would have to, you know, check our bags and go through a metal detector. But that's not, you know, we're, we, we've, we've really resisted getting too restrictive. And, and all in all, it's, it's 
work, but we're still seeing, I mean, we're seeing not necessarily like terrorism as, as we see think of terrorism, but we're still seeing shootings, mass shootings in malls and all that kind of stuff. So we sat at the movie theater in Colum, you know, not, you know, in, I can't remember what city it was, but in, in Colorado where there was a, a oh, shooting. At, was, was it? Oh, Aurora. Aurora, yeah. Aurora, that was it. So the we're still theater. seeing that. We're, we've still resisted it where Israel is just all in. I mean, they've dealt with it for so many years. And I mean, we don't have the same constant threat that's here in Israel, but it's, you know, we, we see with guns and stuff, we're seeing a lot more stuff. I mean, we're seeing metal detectors in schools, at least some of the schools, particularly, in, you know, in, in cities. Uh, I know in D.C. I used to help out with some school papers at a couple different high schools, and I had to go through a metal detector and all that. So, Well, you know, <laughs> we got to wrap this up because we've been going for quite a while here, though. I mean, you know, when Saturday rolls around, uh, the tributes are on. Um, you know, you're going to be watching the news footage from that day. How closely are you going to pay attention to it? Is this anniversary going to be the same as it was at five, ten years? Uh, you know, I think we're just going to be bombarded with stuff. I, you know, particularly the media just loves anniversaries. You know, it's funny when I was at the Post, they were not into anniversaries per se. But we'll see. Maybe they'll. I, I can't imagine they're going to ignore it. The 20th anniversary. I don't know how much I'm going to watch. Really, I, you know, there are some documentaries out there now. I'm, I'd, I'd be somewhat curious to watch maybe a documentary in, in, with George Bush and how it, you know, involved all, all that stuff. I mean, you know, we sort of had with, with George Bush, we had the, the, the worst storm because we had two Hawks, you know, we had Rumsfeld and we had Cheney well, who really were, were calling the shots. And convincing us that we were in imminent danger every single day, that it was, if it wasn't, you know, you know, hijacked plane, it was going to be a dirty bomb somewhere. And that justifies us going into Iraq. Uh, and that justifies us staying in Afghanistan. This went on for years and years of and them making us scared to death. We, we constantly, you know, I mean, we went in, we thought Iraq had nuclear capability. And it's funny, in 2003, uh, I was at a party, one of my neighbors, she always had, different embassies over her house. And she had the Israeli embassy over one night. And I was talking to a guy, he was a lawyer. His wife worked at the embassy. He was just there in DC. And so I said to him, it was before we, right before we invaded Iraq in 2003. And I said, well, what do you think? I said, and he goes, he goes, you know, Israel, Israel, he goes, we're not worried about Iraq. He goes, we don't think they have nuclear capability. He says, he goes, they're secular. We don't think they have nuclear capability. He says, we're worried about Iran. They're religious zealots. We think they do have nuclear capability. That's who we're worried about. And, you know, I told the Post about that the next day. I went to the foreign desk and, and passed it on. But I don't think the coverage was very, you know, accurate. We had a guy, Chalabi, uh, some, from Iraq, who was who had fooled, duped uh, the U.S. into, you know, invading again. Well, uh, it, I think that does point out some some problems with the media, though, in, in times of, of rallying around the flag. Uh, we, you know, we as the media tend to be as jingoistic as as anybody else uh, in those types of things. And I don't know if that's just a function of trying to sell papers and, and uh, you know, get advertisers or if it's something different. Um, but the Times and the Post in particular, the two big national papers really had some some mea culpaing to do. Well, Judith Miller at, at the New York Times had basically told uh, the military guys, like, you better keep looking or I'm going to write and, you know, threatening them. And she just really beat the drum. And she had this guy Chalabi whispering in her ear. And and 
their coverage was criminal. It was it was nothing short of criminal. I mean, it helped stir the war. It helped you know perpetuate it, and that's when you see really the power of the press, and it's and that's when you see you know the mistakes that the press can can make. And you know, I think back then, you know, I think we saw this in Congress, and we probably saw it in the media to some degree. Of people who were highly skeptical of of us going into Iraq again were considered, you know, unpatriotic, you know, skeptics, didn't know what they were talking about. And, you know, we saw, you know, otherwise. Yeah, well, let's hope uh, that we can follow the Who's example and not be fooled again. Right. Uh, if we ever go down this road at some yeah. point. Uh, Alan Langle, I appreciate your time, your thoughts on this. Um, you know, it's just, it's in 20 years. It's remarkable that it's been that long Crazy. already. But um we, uh, we will talk again soon, my friend. Right. Thanks very much. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit. Deadline Detroit has some of the best journalists in the city. We're asking you to support independent local journalism by joining our $3 a month membership. By joining, you become eligible to win prizes, including tickets for sporting events and gift cards to some of Detroit's best restaurants. Just go to our website and click the ad at the top or go to www.deadlinedetroit.com slash membership. Thanks everybody for listening to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. I really do appreciate all of your support. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, it's important that you share it, that you rate this podcast, and that of course you subscribe to this podcast. It all helps. And the more sponsors we get, the more interviews we can do, the more shows I can put together. And I certainly do uh, want to make sure that you are enjoying what you're listening to. So if you have suggestions, you can reach out to me the Craig Folly Show at gmail.com. Again, that's the Craig Folly Show at gmail.com. You can get through to me that way. It's very, very easy to do. And you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat, just about anywhere. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.